Hello, Radioland Podcast Phil and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, the author of Be Frank With Me, Julia Claiborne Johnson, is here to tell us about a book or books we should be reading. Father's Day is this Sunday, and we talk about some literary fathers who we have loved, some good ones, some great ones, and some absolutely horrible examples of human paternity. Tom Lutz, our co-host, has a new book out. It's called Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World. It's a travel book. He's been to, oh, about a million places by my count. And this is the first of three volumes of travel writing he's going to be publishing over the next year. We will be talking to him about that. Joining me on the top of the show is not Tom Lutz, who is gone to greener pastures temporarily. He's probably in an unrecognized nation. Who knows where he is? But this is a new thing we're doing. We're sometimes doing the top of the show without everybody here, but rest assured he is here for the segments. And you are the editrix queen of LARB, Lori Weiner. Hi, Seth. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So, Lord, they did, and by they, I mean the New York theatrical community and CBS did the Tonys this past Sunday. And most of what I have to say can be contained in the following sentence. Fiddler on the Roof got robbed. Oh, did you think? <laughs> Why was it not Best Revival? What one? The Color Purple? <laughs> the Color Purple I did one. watch it. Is that a shift in the zeitgeist, do you think? Maybe. I wonder. It very well could be. It's uh, bad for the Jews, of course. Bad for the Jews. The Jews cannot get a break, apparently. They cannot get a break. When they cannot win the best revival for— And it was a good revival. It was a superb revival. Now, we both saw it. Why did you love it? By the way, I just want to say I love that at the top of the show we're talking about a Broadway show that didn't win best revival. That's what we do. Why do you think it got shafted? Well, I guess— Maybe it's just been done too many times, even though this was an extremely intelligent revival, didn't I, you think? I thought it was great. I thought it was remarkably modern, very well done. It was not corny at all and really uh, stripped the show to its bones and showed that it was a terrific show. It's a very well-written show. But I have another question for you. How overrated is Hamilton, which won 96 Tonys on Sunday? I am a fan of Hamilton. I think that if you see the number that they did on the Grammy— We should also say I'm kind of joking because, of course, I have not seen it, and you have. Well, I was skeptical of it because everybody praised it so highly, and I listened to it, and the first song was like all exposition, and I was very skeptical that it was as good as everyone said it was. But it somehow takes flight. But I was a little disappointed about how— earnest everybody was in that cast, but because of the Orlando shootings, of course, which were hanging over everything, you couldn't really have asked for different. Also, I just put this together when I learned that most of the victims in Orlando were Puerto Rican, and of course, Lin-Manuel is of Puerto Rican heritage, so that probably touched very deeply. But I thought that the number they did did not look that good and wasn't shot that well. So I thought that was disappointing and probably disappointed a lot of people who were like, what is this Hamilton thing about? But if you watch the Grammys, I think you did get a sense of why it was so exciting. And the show was really highly rated as well. Their highest rating in years. So you've seen everything on Broadway. Before we go to our show, what's your one recommendation? And it can't be Hamilton. Uh, oh, I thought She Loves Me was perfect. The show is the essence of charm. So if you do it exactly right, that's what you get. And it's just a pure delight. Now, The Humans won Best Play. What did you think of The Humans? I think he's a very talented young playwright, 
name is Stephen Karam, I think, right? Correct. The ending, I was very unhappy with the ending of that play. So my feeling is that people are so hungry for plays and new plays, and there are so few of them on Broadway, that this benefited from that hunger. And I do think he's a very talented playwright, and he will go on to do great things, but I don't want to give away the ending. But the ending I found completely unsatisfying and, and almost it was disappointing. What did you think? I liked it a lot more than you did. I thought the ending was remarkably effective. Oh, Some wow. people have, have had problems with the tonal shifts in the play, but I thought they were very well handled, very well written, very well directed, and the effect was original, and I was quite taken with it. I thought the play was terrific, deserving of the Tony, and people should see it. I hope it gets produced in Los Angeles. I'm sure it will come to Los Angeles having won the Tony. Should we do our show? Yes. I think we should. The author of the delightful book, Be Frank With Me, her name is Julia Claiborne Johnson, was in here recently to talk about that and other things. She's come back to recommend a book we should be reading. Julia, welcome back to the studio. Thank you so much. What's that book? I have this book that whenever I find it, I buy it because it's the best book about Hollywood ever. And I give it to people as a hostess gift if I can find it. It's called To the One I Love the Best. It's available in libraries everywhere. And it's by Ludwig Bemelmans, who's the guy who wrote Madeline. And he came out to California when he was a young man to work in the motion pictures. And he fell in with this woman named um, Elsie DeWolf, who was the first decorator. She took us away from Victorian stuffiness, painted everything white. She was a very famous decorator. She was in her 80s or 90s. He was in his 20s. Somehow they fell in with mm. each other and became running buddies. And they have all these hilarious adventures. Like her husband calls Sunset the Pretty Way because of all the curves they would drive on that. <laughs> and she took him to the Hearst Castle where like everything was huge, but like in the bathroom, the cold water didn't work. So if you wanted to take a shower, you had to wet a towel, let it cool off, <laughs> mop yourself off. And the dining table would have like salt pepper shakers and ketchup every few feet. And it's just <laughs> full of stuff like that. Like if you love old Hollywood, it is the happiest book in the world. How did Ludwig Bemelmans happen to write the Madeline books? <laughs> well, what happened was Elsie DeWolf owned La Petite Trianon, you know, like uh, Marie Antoinette's mm -hmm. house. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard, I heard of it <laughs> once or twice. But the, and I haven't read it in so long, so I hope I'm getting all the facts straight. She owned that. The Nazis took it over. Then the American army took it over, and then they gave it back to Elsie. And so Elsie was there, and she was trying to make it nice again, and Ludwig was with her, I think. And she had—there were all these artists who she had known who had been in the underground and were dead, and their kids were there. And so she opened an orphanage for the children of artists. And then he would watch the kids and be like, oh. And that's sort of how it oh, started. wow. That is mm. a fabulous story. It's a fabulous oh, story. And yeah. I haven't read it in a few years, so I might not have all the facts exactly. But it is a terrific book. So I'm not very enthusiastic about things I read. Terrific. <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> we noticed. Cheer up. Julia Claiborne Johnson, To the One I Love the Best by Ludwig Bemelmans. What a great recommendation. Thanks mm. for coming back. Oh, you're welcome. Tom, you've got a new book out. It's called Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World. And since I've known you, you've been going around the world. This is a travel book. You've been in a, a thousand and six countries by my count. And this is the first of three 
volumes on your travels. And what was the organizing principle of drinking mare's milk on the roof of the world? Well, the first version of this book was actually an enormous, it was, you know, going to be a thousand page book. It was just huge and it had lots and lots of parts and it was a very complicated structure. And I sent that around and of course nobody wanted to publish it. So the organizing structure was, how do I take that book and turn it into a couple few books? And uh, what was it before you go any deeper? What was the organizing structure of the, of the opus? The opus was was a kind of, I thought of it as a in-our-time structure from the Ernest Hemingway book, um, which was short stories that some of which were related to each other, some of which were not, interspersed with very, very brief um, little hits, um, some of them only a, a paragraph long, some of them a page or two at the most. Um, and so those would alternate. And then there was a third s- section that was all in italics, which was a kind of essay about what it means to travel, what, what, why I'm so obsessed with traveling, what, what my obsession is based on and where, what it leads me to and, and kind of theories of that obsession. And that was scattered throughout the whole thing too. So it was a huge mess of a book and I wanted it to be that kind of book that nobody ever read that you just kind of big brick of a book that you would kind of read in you would like flip around in like it's an encyclopedia more than like it's an actual a narrative book to read so and then and then what made you decide to write a book that someone would care about <laughs> it's just the fact that i couldn't publish the other one i, I thought people would care about it they just wouldn't actually so I'm just, read I'm it. just breaking your chops so yeah. drinking mare's milk on the roof of the world you notice how i keep repeating the title what is the organizing principle of this volume? This has, it's vaguely chronological, and it's all of the longer, it's most of the longer pieces from that first book. And then set the second volume, which is called And the Monkey Learned Nothing. I can't remember where I got that title. I love that title. Did uh, Seth come up with that title? I think I met I think we yes, all voted. I, think, for, yeah. I remember voting for that title. And uh, Dispatches from a Life in Transit. And those are most of the shorter pieces, or a lot of the shorter pieces that were in the original volume. And you're appearing at Chevalier's... Chevalier's Bookstore, Friday the 17th. This is being broadcast on Thursday. If you're around the next day, you can see Tom at Chevalier's in, in Hancock Park. And I'll read a scintillating section of it. Your travels, and I exaggerated before by saying you've been to 1,006 countries, but it does seem to be fairly close to that. You've, since I've known you, you've been going on these trips. Every few months you leave and go somewhere exotic and fantastic. And I've not been able to discern any pattern in here. It just seems completely he, chaotic. He does like countries that are in the League of Unrecognized Nations, or LUN, as I call it. So, so that's one one thing he likes. Was, was there an organizing principle to the this this endless journey you've been on? I, no. I, by the way, I call, I call you the wandering goy when I... <laughs> I'm talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I want to go everywhere. And I'm the kind of person who doesn't like to take the same route home that I took on the, on the way out anywhere. I'm a prisoner of the new. So the principle has always been like, where can I go now that I haven't been before? And I have a map. So I always know where I've been and where I haven't. And I just, I sometimes, when I'm going to place X, like I just was at the Jerusalem International Writing Festival. And I thought, where else can I go while I'm here that I haven't been before? And I just looked on the map, and the closest places were Georgia and Armenia. So I found a $200 flight, tacked it on. But once we were in France, and on the way home, I stopped in Bolivia. 
as, as one does. <laughs> to me, travel writing is one of the most challenging of all genres. I, I don't know if I could actually do it. I think it's incredibly difficult. Do you have a, a set of rules, a, a unified field theory of travel writing? Because I, I feel like if I tried to do it, it would just feel like a letter to somebody and it would no one would want to read it. These books are not they don't fit the model of most travel writing, I don't think. They're really little, tiny anecdotes of encounter with another person in most cases in which I have a, a conversation with somebody that I meet in one of these countries and there's just barely enough setup. It start, kind of starts in, in media res, I have a little encounter, ends in media res, and that's what I'm going for. Little, little tiny slices, anecdotal slices. And so you really don't learn... I don't do any of the work that a serious travel writer would do. I don't try to explain the country. I don't try to explain the culture. I don't try to, you know, accept in passing as as necessary. But so much of, well, I shouldn't say so much of, but I could think of some very fine contemporary travel writers who, who don't do that either, really. What they're really mm -hmm. doing is explicating themselves and their own psychological reaction to being in the environment. Yeah, and there's there's inevitably some of that because I'm trying to relay emotional experiences. And so the, sometimes that's because the narrator is having an emotional reaction to something. But I really am trying not to do that at the same time. I'm really trying to let, kind of bring alive a, a, a person who I met on the road. So if, if I were a pretentious host of a literary radio show, I would say that you were using a pointillistic if. technique. <laughs> I was, uh, it is definitely, the effect is a collage effect, not a kind of coherent narrative effect, Absolutely. When somebody's read the entire thing, and it is meant to be read beginning to end, not dipped into, is that correct? I think you could do it either way. You could you could jump around. So are you telling me I should put this in my bathroom? You certainly can. It's a perfectly reasonable place for it to reside for a while. And yet it's a literary achievement. <laughs> well, that's for other people to decide. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. It's funny meeting you here. <laughs> This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. Norman M. Klein, half the creative team of uh, the imaginary 20th century, has come back. Norman, as the son of a kosher butcher in Brooklyn, uh, we often ask our guests to recommend something from their lives. And uh, we'd like to have you recommend a cut of meat, if you would, to our listeners on well, our radio hour. I grew up in an incredibly neurotic and hopeless household. And the only thing I would eat would be baby lamb chops grilled a certain way. And that was me for about 14 years until I tried to experience puberty and then tried it six more times to try to get it right. I never <laughs> seemed, to, seemed to achieve it properly. But uh, yes, it was definitely baby lamb chops. That was my choice. And, and then my mother had a weird thing that she did. She'd take beef hooves and she'd turn them into an aspic jello. Then the jello would have pieces of garlic inside and it would jiggle when you had a slice. That I would also eat. That was it. So, do you still do you? Is it hard to find that? Do you still impossible. eat? Impossible. This guy from Mexico City claimed he could do it, and his mother did it for me, and it was inedible. I nearly threw up, <laughs> and I had to tell him how how grateful I was while I was trying to eat these chicken bones. It has to be done. It was some weird. I, I grew up basically in Eastern Europe in Brooklyn, 
in a very 17th and 18th century environment. Like my well, father was what constantly. What neighborhood in Brooklyn? Well, it was first. I remember Coney Island. My parents had a real instinct for f- going from one failing neighborhood to the other. So they went from Brownsville, then, oh, that's failing. They went to Brooklyn, oh, that's failing. Then we moved above the butcher store, which didn't fail because the mafia wouldn't allow people to sell to blacks. <laughs> the, the Italians kept it from, from changing. But Brooklyn, and then an area that tends to be called now Gravesend, very gloomy mm-hmm. uh, expression because it's, it's, that, it's that part of the Coney Island island that was attached to Brighton Beach and north of there. So those two areas. Well, what about Sammy's Romanian? Didn't they have the aspect with the with the garlic? No. Do they? I believe Let's go. so. Let's go. I'm looking for it. <laughs> I'm uh, to this day. I mean, head cheese, everything. I'm into this Jello meat taste. You know, it's a, so it's, it's basically the, it's basically hoof cheese. Hoof cheese. Mm-hmm. Is there All such right. a thing? Okay, uh, lamb, baby lamb chops and hoof cheese. That was that was apparently all I ate for about thirteen years. Norman Klein, thanks for coming back with that fabulous recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. tried it home, tried it home. This Sunday is Father's Day, and since we're a show about books and plays and poetry and all kinds of literature, I thought it would be cool if we talked about great fathers in the history of literature. And I have a bunch, and Lori, what do you got? King Lear. No, I'm just kidding. That would be the most boring, (laughs) obvious one. Uh, I don't think that's the most boring, obvious one. I could think of a few more other more obvious ones, but anyway, go ahead. Well, I was going to actually talk about Royal Tenenbaum, the father in the Royal... Were you going to talk about Good that? one. No, I was oh, not going to talk about Royal Tenenbaum. it's such a charming, interesting picture of a guy because he's kind of thrown out of his family. And then when he gets and older... And we should say Royal Tenenbaum. It is a movie by Wes Anderson. The Royal Tenenbaums. The Royal Tenenbaums. And Royal Tenenbaum is played by Gene Hackman and it is a fantastic performance. Everybody's so good in it. But anyway, it's the, the conceit seat is that he's left his family because he's wasn't the greatest dad. I mean, he just did what he wanted to do and he kind of had to leave the bosom of his family. And now he's older and he's, let's say, 70 and he wants to come back. And not only that, but all the kids want to come back too. It's like they all want to get back together again. It's such an interesting impulse. So why does he resonate for you to the degree that he does? Well, he says what he thinks. He's who he is. His daughter, Margot, is adopted. He's always reminding her she's adopted. Like, there's no set of rules about how you have to treat children. And he's the eccentric man that he is, which people don't really get to do in their parenting anymore. So I just found that to be so utterly charming. And also the desire to come back to the bosom of the family and that there's this organic family that everybody, no one was as happy out there in the world as they were all together and they try to recreate it. Excellent choice. I like that. Seth? Royal Tenenbaum. He is not on my list. Tom, what do you got? I like the father in the Patrick Melrose novels (laughs) by Edward St. Aubin. And so the Patrick Melrose novels, for the people who are listening to the show who are not fans of contemporary English literature, are what? Five novels by Edward St. Aubin about a guy named Patrick Melrose, and it's his entire life story. And can I just commend you on the second darkest choice, because I think I have a darker choice. <laughs> you think you have a darker choice? Okay, yeah. good. Well, yeah, it's pretty dark. The scene that has always stuck with me is not when he rapes his son. It's when he's just kind of sitting outside, and there's a trail of ants going past him. And he takes his cigar, 
and just kind of holds it just over the trail of ants so that as they kind of approach the tip of his cigar, they curl up and twitch and basically fry alive and, and die. He doesn't touch them. It's just this kind of random little bit of sadism that's building the character on Edward St. Aubin's part. He's taking just the slightest bit of pleasure from it. Not much. It's a kind of almost unnoticed part of his day, but beautiful scene. So yes. a lovely detail from the Patrick Melrose novels by Edward St. Alban. I like that very much. My list, and I made a list because that was the assignment. <laughs> Which you made, <laughs> Which and then I none made. of us followed. Yeah, this, is, this is the cat herding that I am forced into. My list, and I will go through it relatively quickly, begins with Pap Finn, Huckleberry Finn's dad, who was one of the scariest fathers. I think he is the great-grandfather of Patrick Melrose's father in terms of sadistic, crazy male parents. Moving from Pap Finn, we go to Humbert Humbert, who is not technically a father, but he's a stepfather because he marries Dolores Hayes, Lolita's mother. And, of course, his parenting skills are somewhat dubious, as we find out in the course of the novel. (laughs) Going back a little further, we go to Abraham from the Bible, who talked to uh, God and uh, schlepped up the mountain with Isaac and was prepared to sacrifice Isaac at God's word. I always wondered exactly how awkward the walk back down the mountain was after God changed his <laughs> and, mind. And the rest of their lives. And why, and why wasn't that in the Bible? And what must Thanksgiving have been like that year at Abraham's house? I have no idea. The Father in the Road by Cormac McCarthy, wow. I thought was an incredible modern mythic character that if you haven't read Cormac McCarthy, The Road is a great entry drug. It's a father and son on a road, hence the title, after some kind of horrific nuclear event, as if there could be any other kind. And it's only these people until, well, spoiler alert, they run into something down the road, as it were. But the relationship between the father and the son is extraordinary, and the father's love for his kid is palpable. Nick Carraway's father in The Great Gatsby, who never appears, but in the first sentence, he actually is alluded to. In the first sentence, for those of you who don't remember, in my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. I think in that entitled world that we live in, it's something that crosses my mind very, very often, that sense. The rare book that has an incredible opening and an incredible closing. And then, of course, the final name on my list is Don Corleone, the Godfather, because obviously I don't need a reason. <laughs> well, let's, well, let's talk. It was, do you think you, he was a good father? Uh, he was a great father. I think, you know, in a way, of course, he put his kids in, in a situation that, that led to the death of two of them. But I think he was trying to be a, a great father by the rules in which he was raised, in the world in which he was raised. My other favorite father in literature is uh, Mr. Compson. Uh, From? Jason, Jason Compson in The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Now, why is that? What kind of a father? He Well, he was a, a kind of um, slightly alcoholic, I think, but uh, and fairly hands-off, gentlemanly father. But Quentin Compson um, thinks about him a lot, thinks about his conversations with him a lot. And father said... This is Quentin thinking. Father said, a man is the sum of his misfortunes. One day you'd think misfortune would get tired, but then time is your misfortune, Father said. 
And he's got a lot of these kind of oratund, quotable sayings. One is, used to be the man was known by the books he had. Now he's known by the ones that he's late in returning to the library. He's like, it's it, like Polonius. Yeah, he's a little bit like Polonius, but he's a, but he, it's also a little bit, you know, when Sartre writes about The Sound and the Fury, he writes a lot about uh, Mr. Compson's theories of time and misfortune. I like how you got Faulkner in there. I think I think we've listed some fantastic literary fathers. I'm sure we're forgetting a few. Uh, send us angry emails if uh, they're ones you send feel them to Seth. who were unfairly excluded. And uh, everybody have a good Father's Day. And of course, there's the father in um, Philip Roth's paternity, paternity, and uh, the fa- lots oh, of fathers in Philip Roth. The but Swede. I'm thinking the Swede, yeah, the, the important noise complaint, an important noise complaint. The Swede is from American Pastoral. That's a heartbreaking um, one, a heartbreaking father. And I love there's a moment in which in Sabbath's theater, where um, Sabbath is over at somebody's house, and I can't oh, remember, I remember, and he's and he's sniffing the panties of the daughter you of the knew family, what he was talking about. And, of the, and the father walks in the room. That's just that's a, a, kind that's of a great, good scene. That's a, man. a classic Roth scene. Yeah, it's the burden of the father. Yeah, that scene has th- that book has two completely. Well, it's a great book, but it has two completely indelible scenes. One is when Mickey Sabbath is weeping over the grave of the woman with whom he had the affair, and the other one is the panty sniffing scene. It's sex and death, and mm-hmm. of course that's what else is there? Roth in a nutshell. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Alan Minsky, who was no one's moral conscience. <laughs> Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to Czar of Scheduling, Ashley Bean. Thanks to associate producer, Jim Lane. Thanks to Emerson College for these groovy studios they let us use every week. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.